Hey, 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 welcome back to RM Podcast FL. This is your favorite podcaster, Romina. I hope everybody's having a great and a fabulous day out there so far. I apologize this episode. It's kind of in a mid-Tuesday when typically lunch is on midnight. But as you can tell, my voice is a little off because I am sick. But I cannot wait to launch this episode. So I've been drinking tea nonstop to make sure that my voice is back somehow. Today's episode is with Kwame Christian. He is the director of American Negotiation Institute, where he conducts negotiations and conflict management workshops around the country. As an attorney and a mediator with a Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology, a Master's of Public Policy, and a Law Degree, Kwame brings a unique multidisciplinary approach to making difficult conversations easier. In addition to his role with the American Negotiation Institute, Kwame also serves as a professor at the Ohio State University College of Law, the top-ranked in dispute resolution programs in the country, and Autobahn University MBA program. He is the author of the best-selling book, Nobody Will Play With Me, How to Use Compassion and Curiosity to Find Confidence in Conflicts, and his TED Talk, Finding Confidence in Conflict was the most popular TED Talk topic back in 2017. As of right now, he does have about 85,000 views on that TED Talk, and I would highly advise you guys to watch it. Kwame also hosts the top negotiation podcast in the world, Negotiate Anything. The show has been downloaded with over 800,000 times in 181 different countries. And I had the pleasure of interviewing Kwame and touching some really great topics for you guys. We do talk about negotiating and professional life as well as negotiating with your family members. I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. And again, I apologize for my voice. <laughs> but without losing any time, let's dive right in. And as always, guys, don't forget every Tuesday we have new interviews coming up. And this week, we have one of those bonus episodes as well, so stay tuned for Thursday's bonus episode. Hope you guys enjoy it. Perfect. So just like I mentioned, everybody, today's guest is Kwame Christian, which I'm very, very excited for. Hi, how are you today? Hey, Romina. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Absolutely. So I know we connected well back through Edward Rowan, which is another uh, friend of mine that we launched an episode um, a couple of weeks ago. And um, I got to uh, introduce, get introduced with you through LinkedIn, really, through a message. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then you were very nice. You scheduled a 15-minute call with me right away just to try to get to know each other a little bit better. And then I read your book, and I was like, I need to interview this guy because this guy is awesome. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for buying it. I'm, I'm glad you liked it. And I appreciate the shout-out you gave me on LinkedIn with the video. That was awesome. Absolutely. Well, I do have it here. It's all finished. Fantastic. Awesome. Nobody will play with me. It's one of the greatest books out there that I've read, honestly, because I, I love how you bring up like the research, the psychology behind it and how you can mm -hmm. relate to every situation. Yeah. Yeah. My, that's my background. So my undergrad degree is in psychology. And so I love psychology. That's the base for everything. And so for me, when it comes to difficult conversations, a big problem people have is confidence. We're just afraid to have that conversation. So I want to start from your personal psychology. You're, you're helping people to their barriers are so they can be more confident and then have those conversations. 
Nice. So I know you have your own podcast, um, which I'll attach the information below. But if you can just give us a little bit of story of who is Kwame. Tell us about Young you to today with the best summary that you can give us. Okay. Well, yes, thanks for the link uh, for the Negotiate Anything podcast. It's So I, I'm a first-generation Caribbean-American, grew up in a small town called Tiffin, Ohio, and then went to Ohio State for law school. Uh, studied psychology at my master, my undergraduate degree in psychology, minors in foundations of law and Spanish. And then I went to law school, got my law degree and my master's of public policy, both from Ohio State, then practiced law for a little bit, and then started the American Negotiation Institute. And that's what I do now. And you're also a professor. You just start teaching a negotiation class for an MBA program. Yes, I did. And so that started um, yes, last night. Last night was the first class. And it's a lot of fun. It's going to be 15 weeks. And it's three hours a night from 6pm to 9pm. And so I told my class, I said that that class time is a little bit ridiculous. I will never keep you to 9pm. <laughs> That's absurd. Uh, and they appreciated that. So it's a fun class. Nice. Yeah, I remember those night classes and I still take night classes because people work full time and they just try to fit it on their best schedule. Um, Kwame, what was the moment or the event of your life that you made me made you realize that you just love doing what you do? You love negotiating and you love being included in negotiation and uh, negotiation deals. I think I don't think there was a specific moment, but there were signs throughout my life that I I wouldn't say I ignored, but they were pretty clear signs. So when I graduated from or when I was going through undergrad, I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. That's what I wanted to do because I wanted to help people. That's what I liked. And so then I started to get into politics because I realized if I become a politician, then I could help more people at one time through policy. So that's why I went and got my law degree and a master of public policy at the same time. And as I learned more about politics, I realized I do not want any part of this, <laughs> this world It's too grimy. I don't like it. And so I said, well, my goodness, what am I going to do? I have a degree that I don't want. But during law school, I discovered negotiation. We had a negotiation class. I took it because it fit into my schedule and I fell in love with it because it was the first time I saw negotiation. It was the first time I saw psychology in law school. There it is. I see it. Now we're talking about human interaction, changing behavior, understanding people's psychology. There it is. And so we had this negotiation competition at the law school and it's where you and a partner negotiate this fictional um, situation for a uh, client and you're going up against somebody else. And my partner and I, we won that competition at the law school and then we got to represent the team in ottawa ontario for regionals and we won that too and then we got to represent the team at um the american bar association national competition in louisiana in new orleans and we got um we made it to the semifinals. so after that i was hooked i just needed to figure out a way to make this my main focus and there wasn't any job that really did that and so that's why i had to start my own thing nice so that, that is a struggle sometimes, though, that I feel like people deal with, you know, they're, they are at the current position, for example, just because, of course, we have bills, we have expenses, but it's hard to make that step of having your own practice 
and giving up on something that is guaranteed X amount of money for a month. Was it hard for you to make that jump? It was harder for my wife <laughs> because, <laughs> uh, because she likes that stability. That's what she wanted. But my thing is I'm more motivated by the fear of regret than the fear of failure. And so if I said to myself, if it's all said and done and I'm a successful lawyer, I didn't really like it, but I made a good amount of money. How would I feel at the end if I was on my deathbed? And so I said, I'd, I'd feel regret because I knew there's a big part of me that's, that's not aligned with what I really truly wanted to do. And so I would have regretted that. And I said, if you tried this and failed, then what would you feel at the end? I wouldn't feel that same regret. I would feel proud of the effort that I did. So I said, all right, I'm going to follow what that Kwame wants to do, <laughs> that deathbed version of myself, because that's the, the wisest potential version of who I am. So I was guided by that decision. And so I made, came to the conclusion that I would rather risk losing my way than winning somebody else's way. And that's very interesting that you bring it up to that point that if I was to sit on my deathbed, because most of the older generations, if you ask them, say, hey, like if you were 20 or if you're 30, what did you wish to do? And they all say, what if? Well, I wish I have this regret. So you went for that. You went for that. Do you regret it? Mm -hmm. No, I love it. I, I love <laughs> this. Everything's turning out well. And the thing is, for I, I started this in 2016 and right now it's uh, August 2019 and I say that because your listeners are going to be listening far into the future <laughs> so I want to timestamp this and it was it was a hard road it was a hard road and there were times where I wanted to pack it in and quit after about two years early last summer I said to myself you know what this is just not working out I'm, I'm exhausted I'm getting burnt out but thankfully, my entrepreneurial friends, they didn't let me quit. Even when I tried, they, they said, you need to keep pushing. You're so close. You're so close. And I said, it's easy for you to say, I'm here struggling. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, when it comes to these conversations with, with these um, business opportunities, it's an issue of exposure. More people need to know about what you do. And so you, I reached a threshold where now a request and um, opportunities to do trainings and things like coming in pretty regularly. Exposure was one. And another thing was focus. Kwame, you're cutting out. I don't know if your internet connection. Uh-oh. It might be. What if I, is this a video podcast or no, is it just audio? audio? Yeah. How about I turn off my video to see how it, okay. it looks? Let's try that. Okay, so let's let's just chit chat for a second, see if it seems more stable. Yeah, I actually How, don't. Has, yeah, it, it's much better now. It is okay. The thing also there turned to green instead of red. So. <laughs> oh well, good. Oh, fantastic. Where so, should I go back to? It was exposing yourself towards what you do. That's where I start getting cut off. Okay, cool. I'll go back. So for entrepreneurs, one of the biggest barriers we have is exposure. People just don't know who we are and what we do. And so with my strategy, a big part of it was consistently getting more and more exposure. So starting the podcast in 2016, doing the TED Talk in 2017, 
um, do writing the book last year. All of that is geared towards getting more eyeballs on what it is that I do. And then coming on great podcasts, this one, I'm getting in front of more people. So more people know that, oh, my pleasure. <laughs> so more people know that I can do trainings and workshops for the company. And so then the other thing was that I needed to get more focused because I was saying that I could do coaching, consulting, and workshops. And so I decided, well, where's the money coming from? It's coming from workshops, and I'm not getting very many coaching or consulting opportunities. Let's get rid of that. Focus only on workshops, and that's it. And so once I started to do that, people started to say, oh, Kwame does workshops. Kwame does speaking. That's what I'm going to pay him for. And so it became easier for people to know how they can pay me to solve their problems. So it's funny that once you focus on something and devote like a hundred percent of yourself and get rid of like the secondary and the third options, and that's when you that's when you see a lot more productivity, and that's when mm -hmm. you see a lot more good results. Exactly. Exactly. Um, now you did mention a little bit of the TED Talk, which I did watch. Um, congratulations! It's like eighty-two thousand views right now. Thank which you. Is awesome. And you talk about the compa uh, the compassionate curiosity in your TED Talk, which I found it very interesting. Can you sum it up for the audience? Um, what what does compassionate curiosity means to you? Yeah, so it's a three-part framework for managing conflicts, and it's applicable to all interactions from work to home. That's the goal. And so first step is acknowledge and validate emotions. Next step is to get curious with compassion. And the third step is to engage in joint problem solving. And so you address the emotions first, then once the emotional issues are off the table, then you start asking questions. And then once you start getting more information at that point, you're trying to trade proposals, turn it into a joint brainstorming sessions where you're working with the other side to, to find a solution. And a, a lot of people, whenever it comes to the negotiation, because you bring it up to like a, a conversation and you bring it mm -hmm. up to getting to know the other party. But a lot of people have the bad perception when you talk about negotiations. They feel like as this guy's about to take advantage of me. How mm -hmm. do you change that mentality when you sit in the negotiation table? Yeah, I think what you need to do is first show concern that concern for the other side. You need to let them know that they that you care about what they want, not just what you want. There's a term called reactive devaluation, where just because you said it, I don't believe you. <laughs> so think about a, a, a child with their, their parent. A parent tells them to do something. They're like, no, you don't know me. And then the, the, some other cool adult says something. They're like, you know what? Jim said this. It's a great idea. And the parent gets mad because they're saying, I've been telling you that for years. <laughs> Why didn't you listen? But it's just because they haven't established that, that trust because the kid just thinks, okay, you just want, to, want me to do what you want me to do. That's it. So what you want to do at the beginning of the conversation is make the other person feel safe because most likely they don't feel comfortable with the situation for one reason or another. So once you acknowledge the emotions, let them know that you see what they're feeling and you can understand their perspective, then they feel safer in the conversation and it becomes a lot more productive. And that is so true, though, because sales-wise, because I do work sales, people buy from people they like. So once they feel understood, they, they are okay with paying that additional luxury fee or that additional fee. It's like the drone uh, understands them and feels compassionate towards them. Exactly. Now, um, I do have a question because um, I know we can pretty much negotiate every 
every side of our life, that being social media, that being on our families or with the minions in our households. I know kids <laughs> are the best negotiators out there. Yeah. They'll close you every time. <laughs> but um, I, based on, I, I read an article a while back and I actually wanted to ask you this question. Um, so unfortunately nowadays we see social media bullying or high school or elementary school bullying like how can we teach this young generation to negotiate their way out of being bullied or if there is such a way well it depends on the the bullying situation right so if that's a really really tough question so if it's a cyberbullying thing a lot of times the the person who is online saying these things they're saying these things online because they're not comfortable saying it to you directly. And so, especially in the younger generations, face-to-face -face conversation is a lost art. Even when it's a friend, people are opting to connect online digitally versus actually going and meeting and spending physical time with their friends. And so when it comes to that cyberbullying situation, if it were Kai, my son who's three, later on in his life, if, if you were in that situation, uh, one of the things I would tell him to do is confront the person. And I shouldn't say the word confront. I should say have a conversation because essentially what we're asking, what we're looking for is behavior change. And so it's then it turns into a negotiation of, of sorts. But it's important that we realize that in this conversation, there's only one outcome. You change your behavior. I'm not going to at the end of the conversation say, actually, you know what? You can still bully me a little bit. <laughs> right yeah. no that's not an acceptable outcome the, the conversation will end in you changing your behavior one way or another i like it um i mean whenever if it would happen bullying and i the reason why i actually brought it up because it was the article that i read and i moved to america at 17 years old by myself and i feel like i was being bullied a little bit because my english wasn't the best in my senior year of high school but i always uh left at it and i said oh thank you have a great rest of the day you too like, mm -hmm. I always kind of put it aside. So I kind of, I, I always thought it as, I closed the deal myself. I took you off the picture. So sometimes we do have to do that in our lives. So um, we don't necessarily have to negotiate or find a, a happy medium every single time, I feel like. And correct me right. if I'm wrong. No, you're right. Because that's the thing. Because a lot of times people have the, the mistaken uh, understanding that it has to be a win-win type of situation where you have to give up a little bit in order to get what you want. Not all the time. And especially in cases of abuse, there is no win-win. It's I win. You stop. That's it. And again, when it comes to having these conversations and determining whether or not you do that, you have to understand that going back to that deathbed perspective, what would that person say, that version of yourself? Would you look back and say, you know what? I'm glad that I didn't say anything to my bully. I enjoyed being bullied <laughs> for the rest of my life. No, even if the conversation goes well, you would respect yourself more if you have that conversation. And another thing too is that when you think about bullies, imagine a third grade bully. A third grade bully will bully other third graders, second graders, first graders, kindergartners. But a third grade bully is unlikely to bully an eighth grader because bullies aren't looking for challenges. They're looking for victims. And so if you make sure that you let them know that you're not going to be a victim, then they'll, they're going to move on to another target because it's about power. I like that. I like how you broke that down. Thank you for that. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, what, um, Kwame, what did your family, your parents taught you about uh, 
success and about life. What was the best lesson they gave you? Education is the key. Education. They really pushed that. That was that was something that was non-negotiable in my <laughs> family. Um, when I was done with undergrad, I knew that I had to get another degree. They're Caribbean Americans. They're very hard-charging, very hard-working. So I knew that was a big thing, and it's helped me. It gives you a lot of credibility, and the I think the best education, as far as practical, practically speaking, goes is the fact that now. I have developed a, a love of reading. And so I read 10 books. Uh, sorry, sorry, one book a week. That's what I try to do. Try to get it to 52 a year. That's the goal. And the reason I said 10 is because I'm looking over your shoulder and I see the 10X rule, which was a great book <laughs> that I really, uh, really enjoyed. Yep, Grant Cardone. And that's where I got the idea of exposure, which was a critical part of my business Success. He always harped on exposure. People need to see what you're doing. It was the 10x rule that changed my perspective on that. Nice. I did. Yeah, I do like that book too. I actually started following Grant Cardone when I used to work car sales, um, which I was only 22 years old at the time. Uh, but um, he, I saw him. On wow. The yeah. <laughs> I saw him on a conference in Atlanta about a month ago, and honestly, you can feel his passion just about exposure and promoting yourself and going out there uh following your passion it's a lot and i read his wife's book too building an empire which is an amazing book of the behind the scenes because i feel like yes you are successful but sometimes we don't necessarily see the behind the scenes or pay as much as attention to the wife so she broke it down on her side which was really awesome mm. um where, uh, if I want to be in your position, Kwame, in a year, two years, or three years, what should I be start? Like, what should I start doing right now? You should start number one, learning. So, start reading. However, you like to acquire information, do that. I like audiobooks. That's what I do, and so I just consume as much information as I can. Think about it like a competition. There's somebody out there who will be your competition. My thing is, I pretend like that person's reading more than me. <laughs> so when I don't have a book, I could go probably two days without reading a book. But on the third day, I'm getting actually anxious to the fact like I need to, I will stop doing something productive to get a book and start reading it again. It's that important. Because if you can, if you can learn anything, then you can solve any problem. That, but the next step is execution, diligent execution. A lot of people out there are thinkers, and sometimes we think ourselves into inaction. So a strategy is nothing without action. So what I've started to do is I put a shot clock on. Sometimes it's in a day where I would say, all right, I need to figure this out. I'm giving myself 20 minutes to think through the solution. Whatever strategy comes out at, at the end of that 20 minutes, that's what I do. And I start executing because sometimes we sit there and think and think and think, and we don't take action which that's a, that's a big thing because you can make a plan. You can, pl you can have the best plan out there. You can have the best product out there. You can have the best services out there, but if you don't execute it, there's no way you put it out to the world and actually have others purchase it or take advantage of the services. So exactly. that is very big. Yeah. And I think a lot of people think that they have the perfect plan and it might be perfect in their brains, but the problem is there's something that the plan that's missing in the plan, which is real world feedback. So in order to make the plan truly perfect, it needs to be exposed to the air and, and actually see what the world is like. Because then 
you might think through logically, oh, this is how people are going to respond. Then you put that product in front of them or that strategy in front of them, and then they respond very differently. Oh, I, there was no way for me to know that. But now that I do know that, I can adjust my strategy, and the strategy gets better through execution and adjustment. That is very true, though, because like on Instagram, for example, I have I have had people message me and say, hey, I love your podcast, but I feel like your audio needs to be improved and I feel like you need to change this or that. Like I never take it personal. And that's another thing, too, that like a lot of people sometimes take feedback personal, which I don't think that should be the case. If it's coming from a good point of view, like, hey, I think it would be better if you do one, two, three. You always should accept that feedback, which you're not going to get there unless you execute it exactly yeah and that's the same for me i get dinged on my audio all the time and so that's why i bought this nice microphone that unfortunately didn't work for this interview um <laughs> but i got the nice microphone because enough people have been saying hey you need to improve your audio and um so i'm going to listen and even with my podcast it was it used to be named the negotiation for entrepreneurs and then i surveyed the audience and found out the majority of people were not entrepreneurs and so I got that data and I had to change it. So I gave them another survey that said, what should I name my podcast? And the, the one that won was negotiate anything. I didn't like negotiate anything, but the majority of my audience did. So that's what it is now. And it's going really well. That is so true that I remember I actually read it in one of the reviews when I was looking over your podcast, somebody wrote it said i love the title because negotiate anything it actually helped me save 70 dollars on a contract that, that they had to sign sign up for something for the work for for home i'm sorry so i was like this podcast it is actually awesome because it teaches you how to negotiate anything really you can be even at the furniture store trying mm -hmm. to save yourself a little bit more money exactly and that's the thing i want people to be able to recognize that it's one of the most powerful skills you can acquire because it's one of those few skills that you can use in every single human interaction you have perfect um talking a little bit about negotiation so i'm sure you've come across people from different cultures for example i'm albanian um and you may have come up with people that are from europe asia africa australia like anywhere around the world is there a specific culture you would say like they are just the toughest negotiators out there and why <laughs> do you think would that be that's a really great question i i'm not quite sure i think the thing is everybody has a different approach people are different cultures are different i would say the hmm as far as personal experience i cannot identify a specific culture that was particularly difficult to deal with um, but i will say that there are more there's some cultures that are more willing to negotiate they're more negotiation conscious so people from the middle east i've been in medi mediations with people from the middle east um in in the past and they're tough negotiators because they know what they want and they can they can haggle they're used to that their culture supports that whereas in a lot of different cultures where they are negotiation averse where they don't want to have that interaction or they feel awkward doing it they're not willing to push as hard so either they um they're more willing to concede or just give up and say okay no deal we just we're just going to move forward but people from the middle east tend to be willing to stick with it haggle a little little, little bit more and, and work through the process that is so true, though, because working car sales, I work door-to-door -door sales, and I work indoor sales. I can, I can agree with that. Middle Easterns, they negotiate harder, and they're more devoted because I feel like they 
and maybe I may be mistaken here, but I feel like the lifestyle and like how hard they work for the money back home and the culture that they've grown with, it's not as easy as it might be in some other cultures. So they feel like they need to manage that much better. And it's like mm-hmm. a generation thing that they teach them. So yeah. I, I don't know, like, don't, I'm not a scientist. I haven't done a research. Research, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I think that might be a very good reason why. But I, yeah. I, I remember, though, um, I feel like if you teach your kids how to negotiate younger, they're always going to be more successful. Like my father and my my father and my mom had business while I was growing up. And they this is a, this is a running joke in my family. But one time uh, my dad sent me to uh, electric shop to just buy regular lamps. And I remember the guy said, well, it's 50 cents per lamp and I need to buy like three of them. So I told him, I said, well, if I buy 10, will you sell it to me for 37 cents instead? And the guy looked at me and started laughing. So this is a running joke Mm. in my family. And I was nine years old at the time that I just literally went down the street to buy a couple of lamps. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's really cool. That is really cool. I didn't buy it with 37, but I did buy it with 40, apparently, because they literally saved the story. But how, what, like, how would parents, uh, what do you think parents should do to teach their kids maybe about negotiations and maybe about just being, you know, like uh, counterparting the, the offer so they can kind of get used to very young. Maybe this would be on family conversations or family meetings. Like what strategy do you think parents should use? Yeah, well, I think that's a brilliant point because it is a habit. It's a habit that you have to start to develop. And so what I, what I do with my son, he's three, I, whenever he needs to change his behavior, whenever I need to ask him, hey, do something different or you shouldn't do that or anything, I would do it like I would with an adult. So I would just say, hey, what's, what's going on? And he, <laughs> he might say nothing. And then I'll say what I see in the environment. All right, well, I see the chandelier is moving and I see your stuffed animal is right under the chandelier. How did that happen? And so he's like, um, okay, um, well, I threw the monkey and it hit the chandelier and then it fell down. Okay, so what made you do that? I thought it would be fun. All right, so are there any problems that could happen if you do that? Well, it could break the chandelier. Okay, so what are you going to do next time? I'm not going to throw my monkey anymore. Okay, good. And that's it. So I want him to start thinking through this process more so it's not just um saying hey stop that which could make me the bad guy or like the being a caribbean american just spanking (laughs) you know makes me the villain as the parent so instead what they're focusing on is how mean you are and how much they don't like you and then kind of just pushes that behavior into the into the shadows but instead by asking him questions and having him reason through that he can come to the conclusion himself so he, it, it's more likely to lead to true behavior change then also in the future when he runs into that situation with somebody else now he knows how to handle it he won't just move toward coercive actions by threatening he'll say okay i can ask them a few questions for them to change their behavior too that is so true though because not even you're putting the chronological like connection and logic behind it so it's like okay, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. So you're not like, no, don't do it. And then they have to listen to you because you're dad. But when they leave the house, they're going to do it because dad is not there to tell them what to do anymore. So if you implement that logic to them, not even they're going to see you as their friend in long term, which my parents did the same method. That's why I consider them my best friends. But mm-hmm. it's not going to be the, oh, I'm scared of dad. It's always the, he's my partner. Right. So I, I like that. 
Exactly. And so think about it too. I never told him not to do it. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. He, he made the decision himself. You so he owns it. Brought the facts to him. Exactly. So that's the beauty of it too. And just like you said, I want Kai to look at me as somebody he can talk to. And if he knows that I'm just going to immediately punish or chastise him or judge him instantly upon seeing a bad action, then he won't tell me things. And so I think my wife is very surprised when my son tells me things after he's been with her for two hours and I spend five minutes with him. And he tells me something that he never told her because That's whenever, me and my dad. <laughs> yeah. And so whenever, but whenever he does something wrong and when he sees it, when he's like, no, Hey, don't do that. Don't do that. Like I, I never, I never tell Kai what not to do. He always ends up doing what I want, but I never tell him what to do. That's so true though. Cause I, I'm the same with my dad. Like I love my, both of my parents, but I can hang out with mom for hours and dad comes. I'm like, this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. Because he did the same thing. Like, he would be like, why did you do it? Okay, so what did you learn? So what are we going to do next time? And it helps a lot because, like, I'm Mediterranean myself, and I see this sometimes. Kids, when they, whenever they move out of their families or they move out of state, they turn into a whole different person. Because yeah. <laughs> the parent's yeah. shadow is not there anymore. So now they have this freedom they don't know what to do with, and they just go bananas. Uh, Mm -hmm. but if you did the logical thing like for example I moved here at 17 by myself so they did the logical thing for me always I like I always and I even to this day if I do something I think of what are the consequences right exactly it's more rapid maturity I'm not holding his hand I tell people that I am parenting toward obsolescence my goal is to be obsolete as quickly as possible And I do that by creating a child who is able to think freely and for himself and think through the consequences. So your parents clearly did a good job because at 17, you were able to leave and go to a different country and handle yourself. I want Kai to have that. That's that's impressive. That's and a second language uh, to boot. So I want Kai to have that same type of resilience. It um it was scary. I had a little teddy bear that I hugged every night, and the first two years were hard, but if 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 i was to have the option and redo it i would say yes but maybe at 15 this time oh wow really yeah at 15 you'd go you would do it at an earlier age yeah because i feel like i going back to education is power right like i moved here by myself at 17 i moved to chicago um and i graduated high school there and then i went to siue southern illinois university of edwardsville but I was so uneducated to how college pro- uh, applications work. What do I need to do to graduate? I understood, like, I was taking classes that weren't even going to my major because I was not educated and the advisor didn't help me to understand. I can take English for non-narrative speakers, for example, instead of taking AD, like advanced development classes, so my English could get better. So I lost two years of college because I was uneducated of financial aid or the process. So if I moved here at 15, I would have learned that and I would have been at a better position. So always education is power. Like ask questions. I didn't do that. Yeah. Oh, that's a great example. Because I, and and like whenever my, so my brother just graduated from engineering at uh, UCF. And I remember I was like, we need to sit down together. I was like, let me, my mistakes, let that be your lessons. 
you need to do this for financial aid. You need to do this for classes. You need to do this. So he was able to graduate uh, with minor in math, engineering, industrial engineering in four years, finish on time, have great internship throughout the time uh, at school and uh, find a position in his major right away. And he loves his job right now. Wow. So that's what, like, ask questions. It's very, very important, but people are scared. Right. No, that's a brilliant example. That's the key. And, and you know, because you read the book, that's my style of negotiation, too. You just ask questions. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Kwame, what is the best compliment that you ever received, you would say? I remember one time last week, this woman from Florida created this LinkedIn video saying that my book was awesome. That's the best comment. That's the best compliment I've ever received. <laughs> <laughs> the good, good woman, smart. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, before I do jump to the last question, I feel like we covered a lot. Uh, but before I do jump to the last question, which we always know the last question is, what is your definition of success? And I'm always intrigued to what our guests have to say. Is there anything else that you would like to add to this episode or something that I've missed from my questions? Yeah, just say that negotiate anything. There, you see, I'm staying on brand. Um, look at all of these everyday conversations as negotiable opportunities. What do you want out of the interaction? What does the other side want out of the interaction? And what can you do during the process to strengthen the relationship? And once you start seeing these conversations as strategic opportunities, then you're going to start getting more out of life. That's the thing, because I think the best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. And the better you are at this skill, the, the better your life will be. And I, uh, before I jump to the last question, I do want to point something out too from the book though. Um, I, I am as a person that sometimes anxiety does take over me. Um, I love the portion of the book where you talked about uh, critical conversations and how sometimes people get anxious and gets, get awkward. And if we treat that as an issue that just needs to be fixed instead of just t uh, taking it more as a, oh, I'm sorry, like that's something wrong with you then we're going to see things completely differently. Just like, for example, if you're sick, you go to the doctor and you get fixed, right? So mm -hmm. I love how you made that comparison. That really touched me there because as a person, sometimes anxiety takes over. I'm like, this just hit the point because a lot of people tend to judge when you get anxiety. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad that it helped. And it's, it's true because a lot of people tend to judge others who get anxiety. And then a lot of people tend to judge themselves when they get anxiety. And so whenever you start judging yourself for feeling bad, then you start to feel bad about feeling bad, <laughs> which is a completely different process. It, it makes recovery more difficult. And so it's, it's normal to feel these way. Anxiety and uh, these different types of emotions that we feel, it's, it's completely normal. So taking that time to normalize the process is important because it makes it easier for you to recover. Absolutely. And I love that part of the book too. So thank you for sharing that. I read it and I was you. like, this kind of just hit me. <laughs> um, okay, so my very last question, what is your definition of success? My definition of success is ever-changing but the one I'll go with right now is living a life without regrets. That's the goal. Try to even win, lose, or draw. As long as you don't regret the decisions that you made, given the information that you had at the time, 
then I think that's the, the best way to determine success. I love it. And honestly, I ask this question because I'm intrigued from people's definitions and I have yet to come to the person that says definition of success is X amount of money. Like mm -hmm. I'm really, I wonder if somebody's going to say that on one of my episodes just because they're listening to, you know, I'm looking for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, it's just a lot of people. And I did this as a, as a little poll on the Instagram, like, would you like to have a million dollars or special skills? There was only one person that said a million dollars and the rest of them said special skills. Yeah. Well, you know, that one person is not going to have a million dollars. <laughs> and that's the sad part. That's the sad part. Because looking at if you improve your skills, a million dollar, it's going to turn into 10, 15, 50 later if you mm -hmm. get more, better and better skills. Exactly. Oh my goodness. Well, Kwame, I definitely, definitely enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for taking your time. I know you're in Ohio and I'm in Florida, so we definitely virtually yeah. <laughs> are doing this episode, but I hope one day I actually get to meet you in person as well. Likewise. Well, next year at Podcast Movement in Dallas, I will see you there. Yes, I actually <laughs> went ahead and bought the tickets already. <laughs> yes. Fantastic. I'm excited. Thank you for introducing me to that. <laughs> My pleasure. Awesome. Well, where, if people want to uh, want to get a hold of you or want to connect with you, Kwame, where can where can they find you? Yeah, check me out on LinkedIn and also listen to the podcast. Negotiate anything. I'm assuming that your listeners are podcast fans, <laughs> so yeah, check awesome. that one out when they get a chance. Awesome. And I'll go ahead and attach all the information on my podcast too. Kwame, thank you again for your time. My pleasure. Okay. Let me stop. This. Awesome.